Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 193, Alfred the Young, part two. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Karen, Nora, and Mark for contributing already. As you probably know from the last episode, we have the 200th episode coming up, and we're going to do a Q&A, and we're already getting some excellent questions for it. So if you have anything you'd like to ask, just submit it to thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, or you can put it up on Twitter, at BritishPodcast. Also, based upon the reaction on social media, there will be some extra members episodes sometime in the near future that will feature me and my partner discussing the behind-the-scenes stuff for the show. So, the stuff that gets cut out, the things that we'd like to talk about but don't have the time, or just general theory on how the show is put together. We're even thinking about doing a live reading of a few choice pieces of hate mail I've received. So, keep an eye out for that. And with that out of the way, let's get to the show. And I'm actually really excited about this one because we're finally getting to a point in history where we can start to learn about the people beyond just regnal dates and battles and things like that. We're really getting a sense of who these people were. And with Alfred in particular, we're even getting a window into his childhood, which is fantastic. It really does help us flesh out a picture for a man that typically is treated more like an icon or like a statue. So this is really neat stuff. Anyway, when we left off last week, we were talking about Alfred's upbringing and how he was a proficient hunter from a young age, and how he honed those skills throughout the rest of his life. We also talked about how he lamented the fact that he was illiterate until he was about 12 years old, something which he blamed upon the poor state of education in Wessex. This dichotomy in his childhood the neglect of academic learning combined with the emphasis that was placed upon noble sport was something that would bother him for the rest of his life. In fact, this was such a defining aspect of his character that decades later, when he went on to develop a school within his own court, which actually was similar to the one being run by Charlemagne during his reign, well, Alfred specifically arranged things so that a young boy's literary studies would begin before any, quote, manly pursuits, end quote. Now, this restructuring of priorities, with reading and writing being pushed to the fore, isn't something that Alfred invented. Standard continental educational practices for the period emphasized literacy over sporting, but it still gives you a sense of how Alfred felt about his early years, and how important he felt that it was for noble boys within his kingdom to be able to read and write in both English and Latin. Under his guidance, the primary goal of childhood education would be to develop wisdom and intellect, and physical activities would be secondary to that. This whole story actually reminds me of St. Patrick. You might remember that even in old age, St. Patrick was still insecure about his grasp of Latin due to his poor early education. And to me, that story and this one about Alfred have the hint of truth to it. If adulthood is, in part, an attempt to repair the inadequacies of our childhoods, Alfred's actions and the account of his feelings regarding his early years provided by Asser would suggest that even as he was reaching his twilight days, Alfred, like Patrick, was still upset about the state of his early education. 
And it's really easy to forget this, but at this point in the story, we're still talking about a boy who is probably somewhere around six years old, and definitely no older than nine. He was just a boy. A boy who had recently lost his mother. A mother who, judging by Asser's account, was idolized by Alfred, and who, we're told, treated young Alfred as her favorite. So this loss was devastating. We're told by Asser that Osber, that was Alfred's mother, was pretty amazing. Of course, Osber died when Alfred was very young, and much of the information that Asser was recording came from Alfred himself, so we're left to wonder how clear his recollections of his mother were. But I have no doubt that he loved his mum greatly. The questions that do arise are more along the lines of her demeanor and what her lineage was. My guess is that Alfred's recollections of how his mother behaved were hazy and probably reliant on what others told him later in life. Others, by the way, who were unlikely to say anything like, Oh man, your mum was an absolute ass. She once threw a whole leg of lamb at me because I was chewing too loudly. So as a consequence, we can't be entirely sure that Asser can give us a realistic view as to her temperament. But he does tell us that she was, quote, a most religious woman, noble by temperament and noble by birth, end quote. So take that as you will. What I think is more trustworthy is her lineage. That isn't to say that I think it's completely 100% trustworthy. There were certainly political motivations that were at play here. But when it comes to lineage, we're dealing less with memory and more with written records, such as they are. And Asser tells us that Osber was of Jutish descent, and she was also the daughter of Oslak, King Athelwolf's butler. And let's get this out of the way. Yes, according to Asser, King Athelwolf married his butler's daughter. But it's not what you think it is. The term butler is a bit like being part of the Privy Council. It sounds like you're in charge of keeping the bathroom clean, but it's actually a very important assignment, and you're part of the monarch's closest advisors. So, unlike our modern associations, butlers in this time were not mere servants. They are integral parts of how the court functioned, and so consequently, they wouldn't be pulled in from the local village. A king's butler would have been an incredibly prestigious role. He would have sat at the king's side and may have even advised him on occasion and noble families would have competed with each other to get that position. A king's butler was a job that only the best of the nobility could hope to attain. So Osber's father, Oslak, was a very important man in West Saxon society. And what these records are telling us is that Osber was linked to both the Jutish and the West Saxon royal dynasties, and that she was connected to powerful royal lines. And that's important because it establishes Alfred's political claim to the West Saxon throne on both sides of his family. And by informing us that Queen Osber was of Jutish descent, Asser is also establishing Alfred's claim on Kent. Don't forget that it wasn't all too long ago that Kent was independent. And while Alfred could make a claim to the Kentish royal dynasty by saying that he was Alfred, son of Athelwolf, son of Egbert, son of King Aelmund of Kent... That's an awful lot of steps. It's far better to say that his mum was part of the Kentish line, and that she had the blood of Stuff and Whitgar flowing through her veins. And yeah, our old friends Stuff and Whitgar were brought back to bolster this dynastic claim. And maybe it's true, maybe he was connected to those two. 
It's not like these marriages were arranged willy-nilly. Osborne very well might have been Jewish royalty. I mean, political marriages were selected carefully, and King Athelwolf needed to keep his eastern flank, Kent, peaceable. So merging their dynasty would be a clever move. But on the other hand, there were other kingdoms and allies that Athelwolf needed. And Kent wasn't necessarily the biggest threat that he was dealing with. So this might have been a retroactive myth created by Alfred later in his life for political purposes. Because for him, keeping Kent allied with Wessex was a matter of life and death. So it's six of one, half a dozen of the other with regard to what was really going on there. But since we're told that Osber was half Kentish and half West Saxon, let's just go with that. But regardless of her lineage, losing a mother, especially one that Alfred clearly loved, would have been a very difficult thing for him to handle, especially since he was just a young child. But Alfred had his father on hand, and he also had plenty of duties to keep him busy. Even though he was probably only five or six, his days of, quote, riding sticks, end quote, were probably quickly falling behind him. He was now a member of court, and despite his young age and his apparent illiteracy, Alfred was still out there witnessing charters with his father, which meant that young Alfred was traveling with the court and was a known quantity in the kingdom. And then, on Easter of 854, his father, King Athelwolf, called an assembly at his palace in Wilton. At least three eldermen were present, as well as the king's son and a whole variety of courtiers and members of the clergy, including two bishops. This was a massive Easter feast that he was throwing, and it likely would have been one of the big standout moments in the lives of virtually everyone who attended. Especially considering that, at the end of the celebration, King Athelwolf gave away one-tenth of his lands in perpetuity to the church and also to other influential members of society and he released those lands from further royal tributes and services. This level of charity would have been mind-blowing to anyone who heard about it, and he can't help but wonder what impact it may have had upon young Alfred. Surely he had already learned that to be a king meant to be generous and give gifts. Not necessarily because you're a nice guy, but because you're demonstrating your wealth and power, and you're also purchasing your subject's loyalty and service. But what does this level of gift mean when it's given to the church and to God? Some scholars argue that the service that Athelwolf was purchasing was their prayers, that he was seeking a little bit of divine intervention, or at least goodwill from the Almighty. Other scholars point out the political nature of all of this, and that he may have been seeking church support for his house. And we have certainly seen this occur in the past with other rulers. Ultimately, we don't know exactly why Athelwolf did this, but the fact that he was giving so much away must have made an impression upon young Alfred, and may have even given him a sense that a king held not just political duties, but religious ones as well. Immediately upon giving these astounding gifts, King Athelwolf prepared to depart for Rome. It would be a two-month arduous journey, and Asser tells us that Alfred went with him. We've already talked about this in earlier episodes, so I'm not going to retread that ground. But assuming that this was all true, we now have Alfred as a world traveler who is becoming acquainted with major continental leaders, including Charles the Bald. But I wanted to take a moment for us to consider this period directly through young Alfred's eyes. His eldest brother was dead. 
his mother was dead, and all he's ever known was being part of his father's court. But now his father was leaving for Rome, possibly seeking some sort of spiritual guidance through the morass of grief that he was in. He may have even been going to Rome to die. I mean, he was late in life, and that was not uncommon for kings. So given all of that, is it so hard to imagine Alfred begging to come with his father? His whole world was getting turned upside down, and if he was left behind, he would be functionally abandoned with older brothers that he didn't know all that well. After all, they had their own lives and hadn't necessarily traveled with the court the way that Alfred had. I could absolutely imagine a young Alfred begging to go with his father to Rome, and maybe even seeking the same sorts of answers and magic that his father may have wanted. Alfred was also highly unlikely to ever hold the throne, and Athelwolf might have wanted to set his son up for a future life within the church. And what better way to ensure that he'd be a shoe-in for the archbishopric than to have him meet with the Pope, or maybe even have his confirmation held in Rome? It's not outside the realm of possibility. But whatever the reasons, we're told by Asser that Alfred accompanied his father. Now, Rome during this period was nowhere near what it was in the 4th century. Back then, it housed nearly a million people. But now, it was probably somewhere around 30,000 people. And many sections of the city would have either been abandoned or converted into agriculture. Rome had kind of collapsed a little bit. But Alfred, Athelwolf, and other English pilgrims didn't have the benefit of our perspective they wouldn't have realized how far Rome had fallen. For the English, Rome was still magnificent. And let's put this in perspective for you. By comparison, London Witch during this period probably only had about a thousand inhabitants, and the entirety of the greatest West Saxon trading town, which would have been Hamwich, could have comfortably fit inside the Baths of Caracalla. The scale of what Alfred and Athelwolf saw would have been staggering, even though it was less than 10% of what old Rome once had been. The city was bristling with life in comparison with back home, and it would have felt like the center of the world. And it wasn't just the numbers of people, but also where they lived and the infrastructure that supported them. Every street they walked down, every new building they saw, would have been awe-inspiring. Back in Britain, they would have seen the old ruins left over from the Roman occupation. Crumbling walls, the occasional falling pillar, maybe a wrecked building or an arch that survived the ravages of time and scavengers looking for building materials. There were still pieces left over from Roman Britannia, but they were not in good condition. The skills necessary to maintain Roman construction have been lost over time to such a degree that many people now believe that the Roman ruins weren't built by men at all, but rather, they were the work of giants. Literally, giants. Not all believe this, of course, and chances are that Alfred and his father were worldly enough to know that these were the ramblings of the ignorant, essentially the British medieval version of the Flat Earth Society. So yeah, there were some people who believed that there were once a bunch of giants and hard hats running construction crews in Britain, but Alfred and his dad probably weren't among them. However, they still would have been mostly familiar with the centuries-old relics of ancient Rome. And after years of looking at the shadows of old Rome, 
Alfred and his father now found themselves in the real, living, new Rome. And they weren't just seeing old, crumbling walls. They were seeing the buildings as they once might have been. They were in the midst of the people whose civilization once created the ancient buildings in Wessex. Not only that, but many of the buildings would have been repaired, reconstructed, or just outright built over the last 40 to 50 years due to the efforts of Popes Leo III and Hadrian I. So they would be looking at well-maintained and rebuilt examples of Roman architecture. It would have been amazing. But honestly, even looking at the regions of Rome that have been abandoned and left to decay would have been a treasure trove of wonders for the young Atheling and his father. They would have also seen the Scala Saxonum, and very well might have stayed there. The Scala was basically the center of Anglo-Saxon operations in Rome, and was probably located near St. Peter's. It functioned as a hospice, a home base for any Anglo-Saxon militias, and of course, a safe harbor for any English pilgrims. Now, it's not clear who constructed it, the legends are a bit soupy, but current thinking is that it was probably King Inna of Wessex, or maybe King Offa of Mercia. But whoever built it, it appears to have transcended kingdom affiliation. This was a complex for the English. So we're starting to see those sprouts of an English identity that we talked about already taking root even far away in Rome. Anyway, records of later English kings indicate that a portion of the taxes they took went to the maintenance of the Scala, and there's no reason to suspect that this was a new thing. Chances are, the Anglo-Saxon kings had been funneling a portion of their wealth into its construction and maintenance since it was first built. And seeing something like that would have shown young Alfred how much impact the Anglo-Saxons already were having upon Rome. Also, speaking of taxation and construction, Rome doesn't appear to have had much of an economy at this point, so many scholars suspect that the driving force that enabled Rome to exist came from, you guessed it, donations from wealthy patrons. Patrons like King Athelwulf. So if Alfred and his father knew what they were looking at, they would have seen an example of what can be accomplished when resources are marshaled and focused upon the construction of public buildings. I mean, they had aqueducts, and they were working aqueducts, and they were relatively new. Can you imagine the impact all of this would have had upon a young mind? The sense of place, purpose, and duty that it would have imparted? And keep in mind that prior to this trip, Alfred had witnessed his father giving away massive chunks of his land to the church. That alone probably would have given him a firm sense of religious duty. But now he was at the center of Christendom, and seeing for himself the full splendor of what it contained. Hell, I'm just reading about it and I'm getting vaguely religious feelings. This had to be one of those defining moments in his life. Assuming, of course that it happened. And get this, it looks like the trip itself was a long one, lasting probably a year longer than it was intended, likely due to the political instability within Rome from this period. And that meant a full year of seeing all that Rome had to offer, including the over a hundred churches and the myriad other relics and holy sites. A full year of being in a multicultural city that eclipsed anything that they would have seen at home, in both size and scale. A full year to see firsthand the wonders and glories of God. It would have been incredible. 
And it also might have been one of those moments where he was keenly aware of his own illiteracy. Those ancient manuscripts, those holy writs, the things that he would have zealously absorbed later in life, well, they would have been incomprehensible to young Alfred. What a waste. And it's a waste that Alfred may have regretted once he was older. Then, once the trip was concluded, and Alfred almost certainly was not consecrated as king, sorry, they returned home. Well, almost. First, they stopped in Francia and stayed with King Charles the Bald for several months. And once again, this would have been an impressive stay. Probably less impressive than the trip to Rome, granted, but still pretty impressive. I mean, this was Charlemagne's grandson, and while Francia might not be the powerhouse it was under his leadership, it still would have been luxurious and powerful in comparison to what the British Isles could offer. And once again, if we assume that Alfred accompanied his father, as Asser insists, then he would have been there for the marriage negotiations between Kings Athelwolf and Charles the Bald. Sure, it is possible that he was excluded from those talks, but considering that Alfred was already of an age where he was witnessing charters, if he was with his father, I find it hard to believe that Athelwolf would have just left him in his quarters. We don't know how long those negotiations took, by the way, but it looks like they were staying with Charles for nearly three months before the marriage finally took place. And I can't help but wonder how much Alfred learned about international relations during that stay. The marriage probably would have been carefully brokered, and given the age difference, it was clearly a political marriage. Unfortunately, we aren't told much about how this marriage was arranged, nor what occurred during those talks. We also don't know all that much about what Athelwolf and Alfred knew about the state of Francia. From our vantage point, far in the future, we know that King Charles was up to his eyeballs with potential threats. The Scandinavians in particular were a problem, and consequently it's tempting to say, well, Athelwolf and Charles obviously wanted to unify due to the Viking threat. And that is possible, and some scholars do make that argument. But something to keep in mind is that the Scandinavians were just as likely to create a wedge between them as they were to create something that would bind them together. The thing is that raiders tend to seek out the points of least resistance. So if Charles the Bald strengthened his coastal defenses, suddenly Britain would find itself in greater danger. And obviously the reverse would be true as well. So oddly, it would be in their interests for the defenses of their own kingdoms to be strong while their neighbors remain weak. And that's not exactly the stuff that lasting alliances are made out of. As a result, the more likely threat that Charles was concerned about was coming from his own family. There was quite the fight that was brewing, and it was ostensibly over who would control Aquitaine. His brother Louis and the sons of Lothar were a serious problem, and Charles might have wanted support. But even if that's what happened, it only explains one half of the arrangement. Why would King Athelwolf agree to marry Judith and potentially get dragged into this fight? I mean, he had no need for future heirs. He already had plenty. So what was he getting out of marrying Judith? Well, don't forget how marriages worked in the Middle Ages. King Athelwolf would be the recipient of a rather large dowry if he married Judith. And he very well might have needed all of that silver. Not only did he recently give away a sizable portion of his own wealth, 
but he was also gone far longer than he'd originally planned, and he might have gotten the sense that a rebellion was brewing back at home, and he could have needed that money to solidify his standing. Or maybe he just wanted the money so he could buy some of his properties back. Or maybe he wanted to build up his defenses, or any of a million things. The point is that the most obvious and immediate advantage that Athelwolf would gain from this marriage would probably be the cash. Though, having closer ties with Francia would also be incredibly beneficial. Especially if he was looking to expand his borders, or even just expand his trade routes. And again, Alfred would have had an incredible vantage point to learn the intricacies of international relations, diplomacy, and dynastic intrigue during these negotiations. Now, whatever the case, the marriage did take place, and then Wessex exploded into rebellion, led by Alfred's older brother, Athelbald, and also a bishop and an elderman. And this event appears to have made a long-lasting impact upon Alfred, because decades later, when he's translating Bothius, you can read about how angry he is when he provides additional commentaries about how evil and unnatural it is for sons to plot against their father. And that was not a veiled criticism. It was pretty much right out there in the open for anyone to see. So Alfred, even decades later, was clearly livid about what happened here. And if you look at how he behaved regarding his own children, you can see how troubled he was by the rebellion, because Alfred ruled over his own children with an iron fist. Now, as you already know, King Athelbald's rebellion didn't work, and King Athelwolf crossed the channel and retook his kingdom. But given Alfred's opinions regarding the plotting of sons against their fathers, and his own attempts to avoid situations exactly like this with his own kids, you can imagine that young Alfred and his older brother Athelbald were at odds from an early point in their relationship. And frankly, if Alfred did indeed go to Rome, Athelbald's animosity towards Alfred might have been rather significant. After all, we're talking about a man who was willing to launch a rebellion against his own father over just the possibility of a future Frankish child. And Athelwolf was old. That child was not guaranteed. The more obvious threat to Athelbald's reign was sitting right there at his father's side. I mean, Alfred was the one who went to Rome. Alfred was the one who accompanied the court wherever it went. Alfred was the favorite, and if we're to believe Alfred's account of his father's will, Athelwolf essentially bequeathed the kingdom to Alfred once all the older brothers were dead. So assuming what Asser tells us is true, Athelbald had plenty of reasons to hate his younger brother. And then... King Athelwolf died, and Athelbald took the throne. He would now be the man to decide Alfred's fate. And this is the chaos in Alfred's childhood that I was hinting at for the last couple episodes. Alfred very well might have been the favorite, or at least he appears to have been in the preferential position that could have caused a lot of resentment amongst his siblings. And now, the one person who could still protect him, his father, was dead. And his older brother, a man who angered him so much that it even came out in his translations, was in charge. So if King Athelbald wanted Alfred kept out of the halls of power, if he wanted Alfred to be kept illiterate and isolated, if he wanted Alfred relegated to a position of obscurity, there was virtually nothing that Alfred could do to stop him. All he really had at this point to protect him 
was the fact that his father transferred lands jointly to Athelbald, young Alfred, and Aethelred. And that was a clever move, since Athelred and Alfred were the babies of the family, and could potentially find themselves destitute if their older brothers had a cruel streak. So it did at least give them a degree of power in court, but only once they reached adulthood. But as for right now, in 858, Alfred and Athelred were just kids. And as for any degree of power over their destiny that they had, well, right now, they were at Athelbald's mercy. And it seems quite likely that Alfred's life in particular was lined up for a rather precipitous fall. Similarly, Queen Judith could have found herself in a tenuous position. Her father was powerful, but he was also across the channel and burdened by a whole variety of threats that only a Carolingian could create. Based upon her position and wealth, she held properties within Wessex, and it does appear that King Athelbald wanted access to those revenues, and also he wanted to maintain a connection with the Carolingian court. And so, he immediately sought to marry Judith. Now, it's not clear if she had any say in this matter, but at the very least, there had to have been enough duress present to raise an eyebrow in a modern court. But that being said, despite the dubious situation, there were logical reasons why the 14-year-old dowager queen may have wanted to enter into this marriage with Athelbald. Ultimately, if she was given a choice, she really only had one of two choices, right? Option one, meaning that she'd say no, would result in her abandoning her properties in Wessex, returning to her father's home, and then waiting for King Charles to find another match. So she'd no longer be a queen, and for all intents and purposes, she'd be going backwards and may find herself being a mere duchess or baroness. Or she could go with option two, and marry this creeper and retain the status and wealth of being a queen, even if it meant that she'd be a queen of what she likely saw as a backwater. Another thing she might have been considering when making this decision, if she could make the decision, was that she was now a widow, so there's no guarantee her father could find a really good match. She might end up being married off to another backwater noble who's even lower in rank. So it's possible that she consented to the marriage freely, and for completely understandable reasons. Or maybe she didn't. But whatever the case, she remarried. Now this was something that we look back to today with shock, as she's being married to both a father and a son. And actually, people back then were shocked as well. The clergy sort of lost their minds over this. But, beyond having logical political reasons for wanting to enter into this marriage, it's also possible that it wasn't as creepy as it appears on the surface, because it's entirely possible that the first marriage wasn't consummated. King Athelwulf was pretty damn old, and this was before Viagra, so he may have never touched her, especially since he may have still been in mourning. And this marriage looks like it might have just been about the money. Also, Queen Judith never bore a child to him, and that is rather suggestive. But, because this is the BHP, I'm gonna muddy the waters a little bit with a question. What if she didn't bear any children, because she was only 14 when he died, and as a consequence, she hadn't hit menarche yet? Puberty, especially for women, isn't just a matter of timing. It's also linked to size. What I mean by that is that the point at which a girl hits puberty is partially influenced by her relative height and weight. 
These days, we're accustomed to seeing girls going through puberty at 12 to 14 years of age, or even younger sometimes. But historical records indicate that this is earlier than has happened in the past. Now, people often point the finger to environmental contaminants like plastic and growth hormones in our food supply. But something that few people seem to consider when discussing this is how calorically rich our diets have become. We aren't going hungry like we used to. We aren't malnourished like we used to be, unless, of course, you eat at McDonald's. And as a consequence, menarche seems to kick in a lot earlier. But Judith didn't live in the 21st century. She lived well over a thousand years ago, in the middle of a whole host of crises from Scandinavia and all over Europe. So, while Judith may have had a better diet than most people in Europe, did she have the sheer level of calories in her diet that we currently experience? Probably not. And so she might not have been fertile yet, nor developed any secondary sex characteristics that would have indicated fertility until she was well past the age of 14. And that may explain why she didn't have any children with King Athelwolf, even if the marriage was consummated. So, there you have it. It's a grim situation, and she may or may not have consented to it. And it's certainly questionable. But, depending on the circumstances it might not be as creepy as it first appears. Or maybe it was. Who knows? All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And please come and join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. It's fun. I like Twitter. Okay, thanks for listening. <laughs>